0: Okay, you can be seated. We do want to welcome those that are watching online too. And we recognize that on any given Sunday morning, there are people uh, here that are really exploring. They really don't know what to think about this whole God stuff, this Jesus stuff. And we want to make sure that you feel welcome as well. I want you to turn to the book of Nehemiah. If you don't have scripture, we'll be putting that on the screen. Book of Nehemiah, we're going to be in chapter 8. Now, I gave you homework last week. (laughs) I really appreciate some of the emails and texts I got. It really sounds like it was a positive experience for a lot of people. So I want to recommend to those who had a positive experience with it to take the next challenge to do this every single week till Christmas. Amen? And of course, when we fast, we don't fast to get God to do what we want or what we think we want. We fast to open ourselves up before God saying, listen, you know, and remember the, the four categories? One is where's God leading us? That's clarity. And we pray against enemies that come after us, both the outside, inside. And, you know, a lot of the enemies are in our hearts. It's those things that we think about. It's those things that offend us. It's those things that that we just don't coordinate with him. And then three people who will join the cause because this is a community event. We can't do what we do alone. And then the fourth was, what is my part? So I just reflect upon that. And last week, I didn't get a chance to finish my sermon. Now, let me explain something. Some people said, well, why did not you just go ahead and finish? We would have waited. Well, one of the things that we're sensitive to here at GBC is that we have some people coming in from White Deer Run and some other recovery houses that have to leave by 12 o'clock. So the reason we make sure we're finished on time is so they can be part of the whole experience and part of the prayer time that we had at the end, rather than having to get up and leave while I'm still preaching. So that's one of the reasons why I didn't finish. But I'm going to finish this morning because it fits into what we said last week. And no, that does not mean my message is going to be that much longer, okay? I just made it part of where we're headed. Now, last week, we talked about the importance of God's word, that we have to read it, listen to it, understand it, respect it, practice it. And as far as the application with the children of Israel, the first point we saw was fasting. And the reason they fasted is they were in the process of trying to figure out life. You know, what's their next step? Like I said, so often we fail to realize the context. Yes, the wall was finally built, but now they had to build their homes. They had to build their neighbor's homes. In all this opposition, nations around Israel were still pressing in. There were still nobles in the midst of themselves that made alliances with these people, that made economic contracts with these people. And they were still pressing in, and, and they were still wrestling with the whole discouragement issue. So they fasted. Say, okay, God, what's the next step? So another response then was confession. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 2, we read these words. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Confession is stating what is true. It is stating true about how God views our choices that we make. But there's another part of confession that we often fail to realize. Yes, confession is declaring what is true about us, but it's also declaring what is true about God. When you read further down, and just listen to this text here, because there's a lot of different phrases here. When you look at Nehemiah 9, listen to what they said. Yes, they confessed the sin of themselves and the sins of their fathers. But here's what they said in verse 6 of chapter 9. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, to the earth, all that is on it, the seas, and all that is them is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. And then it goes on to give this big history lesson about how they were God's chosen people. And there was a covenant made a long time ago with Abram. And in this confession, again, there's two aspects to this confession. Listen to this. In verse 13, You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statues and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven, their hunger, and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands. They stated what was true about God and they stated what was true about themselves. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, their feet did not swell. For forty years he fed them, he clothed them. They didn't need to go to Walmart. And it says their feet did not swell. He watched over these people. So you see the contrast to confession. Yes, we confess our sins, but we need to confess what is true about God. And this whole text goes back and forth, and it reaffirms their covenant with God. And what that means then is this whole process, and you can use whatever word you want. I'm going to use the word transformation. What it means is that transformation begins with me. Now, say that with me. Transformation begins with me. Now, you don't look at your neighbor and say you. So say it again with me. Transformation begins with me. Now, the third aspect that was an indication they were listening to God's word was their worship. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 3. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law, the Lord their God, for a quarter of the day. You know what a quarter of the day is. For those Matthews, six hours. For another quarter, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So we're talking about a 12-hour period of time. To worship means to bow down. And we bow down to one God and we give our allegiance to one God. It's where we get the phrase, we worship to an audience of one. And in America, when you look around and you look at our consumer culture, we need to take our worship more seriously than we have. In fact, it's my observation that we have played at our worship. There we're consumers of our worship. Billy Graham said something one time that upset a lot of people. Here's what he said. Your checkbook is a theological document. It will tell you who and what you worship." Now, that upset a lot of Christians. Why? Because it's a true statement. We need people who are sold out to worship to the one true God. So, that kind of wraps up last week. And I close with a time of prayer that we gather together. This week, we want to take that now and say, okay, how do we gain insight? It's one thing to read Scripture, it's one thing to understand Scripture, it's one thing to fast to confess, to worship. But what we need is insight. And this is where we go back to chapter 8 and look at verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses and all the people, with the priests and with the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe. Why? In order to study. In order to study the word's words. Of the law. This word study means to gain insight. Sometimes we use the word wisdom, sometimes we use the word discernment, but what it means is the ability to take information, to dissect it, to gain a proper perspective, and move it into our lives. It's all those elements. I know sometimes in America we think study means I'm gonna know the facts of the text and therefore I know it. No. You gotta know what it says, you gotta know why it says, you gotta know how it applies to our context, and you have to live it out in your context. Let me give an illustration. Proverbs chapter three, verse five. I'll be like Chris. Does anybody know that scripture? <laughs> yes, yeah, some do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Now, some people who know the Bible better than I do say if you look at X amount of verses this way and X amount of verses this way, it is dead center in the middle of our Bibles. I don't know if that's true or not, but it'd be fascinating if it was. But what does that mean? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. I mean, how does that apply to today? I was sitting with a group of businessmen the other week, and they were talking about and they were discussing what to do with the LGBT community in respect to their employees. You know, how do they embrace, how do they welcome but not affirm, how do they treat them fairly, how do they give value to them because they're made in the image of God just like everybody else, but how, in the same sense, do they witness and help them navigate life? At one point, one business person said this, my wife and I have already discussed and we know we will be sued. It's not if, if, It's when. It isn't a matter of doing everything right because in the context of his business, they really do treat them fairly and with value and just like everybody else. But they said someone that has a militant attitude is going to come along and we're going to get sued and we will lose everything that we built. Now, here was this question. I want to know in that kind of scenario, what is the biblical response? So all of a sudden, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your understanding. Do you see how that translates into a work environment, into a tough situation? I know we like fairness, but life's not fair. When you start looking at fairness in context of our world, context, there are people around the world. Next week, by the way, is they're asking us to come together to pray for the persecuted church, and we're going to do that next week. Um, the number one country right now being persecuted is North Korea. Now, you hear a lot of things about North Korea in the paper and in the news, but one of the things you do not hear is the amount of Christians that they are seeking to throw in prison and kill. Is that fair? Is it fair that they happen to live in North Korea and they can't worship like we do? Of course it's not fair. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a gospel that's fair. It's a gospel of grace. Amen? So what I'm trying to say is this. Where are we going to get our insight from? And how are we going to process that insight? And are we ready to take the insight and apply kingdom of God values to our situations and to every situation? And what Nehemiah tells us is that knowledge is not enough. You can take biblical knowledge, you can study it, you can gain perspectives, you can gain insights that go against the norms of our culture, but somewhere along the line, you have to apply it in our context. We do not gain insight if it does not enter into our lives. Now, in Nehemiah's day, they had decades of knowledge and very little insight. And their default was their court cultural norms. And it's why the walls of Jerusalem lay in ruin for 120 years. And it's my premise that today a lot of people's lives are in ruin because they do not take God's word serious enough. They don't worship. They don't confess. They don't take the insight and apply it to their lives. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14. Jeremiah was the prophet prior to Babylon coming in and destroying Jerusalem in three sieges. But here's what he says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And again in Jeremiah 8, verse 11, they've healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And Ezekiel, considered a contemporary of Jeremiah, said, precisely because they misled my people, saying, peace, where there is no peace. You see, they had the knowledge, they had their version of worship, but there was no insight There was no taking it, breaking it down. We often call this discipleship. There was no way to engage in a conversation and say, what is the right step at this time and place? And this should frighten us that we have the ability to take something as precious as God and His Word and reduce it to manufacturing our own truth. This is the height of idol worship. The height of idol worship is, here's what I want, rather than what he desires. Now, unless we think that was an exception, look at Jesus' day. When he's talking to the religious leaders, these are the people that held the knowledge, that held the script. These are the ones that everybody went to for interpretation, for knowledge, for insights. But here's what he says about these people in Matthew 13. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. They could quote scripture. In fact, they had it memorized. Everything. That was part of their regiment. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled when it says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. I mean, there's all kind of warnings about this need for insight. It's not about the information we know. It's not about what we can memorize. It's not about how well we can look in terms of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's whether or not we take that, we gain the insight, And then we apply it to our lives. In Deuteronomy chapter 8. And again, they knew this. Take care lest you forget. The Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes. So you see what happens? If we do not take and apply these things to our lives, we will forget. Then your heart which I command you today, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Now, we begin to start seeing the why of insight here. If you lack insight, what happens? There's harm. Walls come down. Nations come in and invade. Idols destroy your life. You have it, there's healing. And again, the context here is that we are eternal beings. So you just not look in this life because you start saying, well, if if I obey God, if I do everything right, then I'm going to have this happy, carefree life. No, that's not what it says. It does say that you have peace, which passes all understanding. You'll have indescribable joy. It does say that you're going to be content and that someday in heaven, you're going to celebrate for all eternity. But it doesn't say that you are gonna live a life that you're gonna be healthy, wealthy, and you're gonna get whatever you want. Now, our problem in America is we think we're pretty smart. I mean, we have smartphones to prove it, right? <laughs> I often wish I still had my dumb phone because my smartphone makes me feel dumb. Amen. <laughs> Here's the problem with our smartphones. Read a statistic this past week with a group that I'm associated with called Integrity Restored, and they said that nine out of ten boys and six out of ten girls are exposed to pornography early on in their teen life. The average age of the first introduction is age eight. Do you know what the primary tool that pornographers use? The smartphone. And I ask myself constantly, and my son who's in education, I mean, he, he, he teaches elementary school. Um, he goes, I have no idea why these kids are walking in with phones that are better than mine. Parents who think they're pretty smart give the kids an access door that pornographers are using to hook their kids on pornography at age eight. So I asked myself this question this past week. What keeps us from insight? What keeps us in our state of not being before God and listening and understanding and applying? Well, the first thing we already talked about is sin. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin. Which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. We know when there's sin in our life, it clouds our thinking, it clouds our feeling, it clouds our understanding. So that's why confession is so important. We say what is true about ourselves, but we also say what is true about God. Secondly, it's distractions. Again, same verse. You note there it says, and lay aside every weight and sin. Weights are good things. There are good things that can distract us away from verse two, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, one of the important things about fasting is it renegotiates looking to Jesus. That's what it does. It takes this away. And it's interesting, this past week I had people said, you know what, we um, fasted Facebook and we realized that we put a lot more time into Facebook than we ever thought when you started adding it up. Had all this free time. But you notice the principle here? When you let something go, you have to do what? You gotta put something in its place. You never just let it go because if you let it go, then you start thinking about what you let go and you obsess over it. Then you kind of go back into it even stronger. I had some people say they fasted the news. <laughs> and they're really happy this week. <laughs> Imagine that. So what's great about fasting is we can let go of distractions, we can let go of things that control our time at a far greater degree than we think, and then what we do, we just kind of focus in on Jesus. And you know, this past week, I know I gave you four things to pray about. but if you fast it, you realize that didn't take a whole lot of time, so what you start doing? Well, you started praying for people like little Adelina. And you started praying for other people that you knew. And all of a sudden, your hearts were softened towards for people that you said, you know, I, I'd pray for you, but you never did. And so you start praying for those. I had some people say that this past week transformed their life. So that means you got to keep it up. Distractions. A third thing that keeps us from insight is not thinking. In verse 3 of Hebrews t- chapter 12, Consider him. The word consider is not like, oh, yeah, I I thought about him. It's an in-depth, concentrated, strong effort called obsessive thinking. It's taking that time who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. By the way, when you start realizing that Christ, who was perfect, who never did anything wrong, he offended people, he made people angry, he made them angry enough that they would kill him one day, Why do we assume that we as Christians, if we're good Christians, people are just going to love us? If you take the time to consider the life of Jesus and you realize he was the most perfect, loving, gracious, compassionate person and people still were so angry. I got news for you. And why do we remember this? Well, the author tells us so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now apply this to our following Jesus. If we're so distracted, think about the why of discipleship. Why are we followers of Jesus? Have you ever asked yourself that question? You should. Go and make disciples. It's a command of the church. That's the mission of the church. But why do we make disciples? Well, Paul answers this question succinctly in Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 7. Philippians 3, verse 7. Just listen to what it says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The gain he had before was all this religious adulation. I mean, he was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He knew it inside out. He listened to them. He followed the ways that supposedly were to get him holy before God. He says all that kind of stuff. He says, it's gone. Why? for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So the why of discipleship simply is this. To get to know him is to get to know God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, in order I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, But that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So I ask myself this question what does it mean to build a culture that celebrates behaviors that center on being Jesus' followers? What does a culture look like that celebrates behaviors that center on knowing Christ? What kind of behaviors do we want to put out front? Now another thing that keeps us from insight is perspectives. This is what and who we choose to believe. So often we listen, we take words, we apply our definitions, and we make them say what we want to hear. And if you don't, there's plenty of people on the internet that will. (laughs) Here's my challenge for you this morning. Let God speak for himself. Let God speak for himself. Philippians chapter 1. Only let manner of life worthy the gospel of Christ. And then he talks about standing together and being united, not being frightened. Then he says this, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Think about that perspective. And think about how in most of our churches, our discipleship means that we're going to be comfortable. We're going to get what we want. And we're going to be just generally nice, happy. We're not going to suffer. Now we got to flip the question around. What keeps us from insight? How do I gain insight? And going back to the text, the first thing, again, and we've been stressing this, is a desire for God's truth. Got to move it from the head to the heart. And again, we have so much access to God's word. And because we have so much access, it's so easy for us to think it's boring. And who cares? But lives are being destroyed by idols. We see it all around us. We see the violence increasing. We see the tribalism increasing. In verse 14 of chapter 8, and they found it. They found it. Written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses to the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and the branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and the other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. Now, I'm not going to get into this whole Booth thing and everything else. What I want to stress is those key aspects. You know what? They found it. There's a lot of people who read scripture, but they need to find it. And they proclaim it, and they publish it, and they go out with it. The desire for God's truth, if we really believe what it says, if we really understand about Jesus Christ, if we understand about heaven and hell, if we really take to account and move it to our heart, we will proclaim it and publish it and we'll go out. Why? Because we know it's a matter of life and death. Amen? Amen? Second way we gain insight is people. Now by people, I mean the right kind of people. It's interesting in our culture, there's been a shift I've told from sociologists that we now gather in tribes centered on who or what we're against. Okay, Now, I think that's a true observation. But think about the implications of that. That we gather together and we talk about what we're against. Think about the negative energy and the hostility and the tribalism that just evolves from that kind of gathering with people. Now, The church, if we believe discipleship is about knowing Christ, we gather around who we are for. Pro Jesus, amen. And that's why we pray for people like Adelina and others. It's why people gather around Matt and Beth. Why? Because there's insight, there's strength as they navigate this crisis. They're not alone. But look at verse 16 of chapter 8. So, the people just keep that phrase. And again, it wasn't all the people, but it was a majority of the people. They stayed away from the enemies that were outside. They stayed away from the enemies that were in. But the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof and in their courts, in the courts of the house of God, in the square of the water gate and the square of the gate of Ephraim. And you just see this whole picture that the masses are just entering into this activity. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, son of Nun, to the day that the people of Israel had not done so. That's a sad statement. They stopped gathering together. They stopped gaining insight from God's word. They stopped living as the people of God. And they laid in ruin for those years. And I love this last phrase. And there was very great rejoicing. The third thing that gives us insight is time. What we spend our time on is what we are dependent on. In verse 18, and day by day. Catch that phrase. Day by day. From the first day to the last day, he read the book of the law of God. And they kept the fast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. It's one of the reasons fasting can be so profound because we take a time as a congregation. We did it collectively on Wednesday. And even though we're in separate places, we made our little booths and we fasted and we prayed together for a common cause. See, insight is about discipleship. It's where we read God's word. We understand God's word. We apply God's word. We do it alone and in community. It's not either or, but it's and both. And all this gives us insights. And again, the critical question is why? Because we desire that we know him. So often we desire for God's stuff. You know what God's stuff is? People say things like this. Well, you know, he owns a cattle in a thousand hills. Just give me some of those cattle. That's all I want. (laughs) Some stuff is a desire for God to get us out of situations that we put ourselves in. But so often, our focus is on comfort. It's the idol of comfort. This past week, they've been celebrating the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's 95 thesis, which started what we know as the Protestant Reformation. And part of that was just Martin Luther's desire for God's truth to all the people. See, back then, the institutional church kind of ruled, and whatever they said is what you believed kind of like the Pharisees and Sadducees at the day of Jesus. So Martin Luther was standing against the institutional church, which made their version the only version. And he wanted to give everyone the ability to read God's word for themselves. He wanted to give everybody the ability for God's word to be unleashed, to gain insight. And our world has never been the same. And I had to think with those 95 theses, the kind of courage it took. And I said to myself, you know, it's our time to be courageous. It's our time to take God's word, to hunger and thirst for it, to tear down the idols, confess. But confess about our great God. To take our pride of what we think we know and live simply with God. Let God speak for himself. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to close with a song. And I want to close with where I began closing last week. So for those that didn't talk to me this week, how'd fasting go? And again, I appreciate I heard from some of you, the insights you gained. But I really want to raise the challenge from now till Christmas to fast and use this as a framework. But again, you, you fill in just needs that come across. Where's God leading us? Pray against the enemies that come after us, both outside, inside, in our hearts. Pray for people who will join the cause and what's my part? And again, what's great is you always end up adding people to the list. And you start asking God on behalf. Because you know, God's heart is broken and our hearts need to break with what breaks his heart. Amen? already said next Sunday, and you can add this to your list this week, we're asked to pray for the persecuted Christians, and they're asking for special prayer for those in North Korea because of just being so heavily persecuted right now. But as I give you that challenge, think about what you have to gain. Fasting, we always talk about what we're going to lose. No. Fasting is what are you going to gain from this? Amen? Let me close with you in prayer. Father God, we thank you, Uh, we praise you, you are a great God, you're high exalted, you're sitting on a throne, we confess that. You are Lord of the creation, there is none like you. We thank you that your son came to this earth, he was fully human and fully divine. And when he sacrificed his life and rose again, he left his spirit here which we have full access to. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your insight that you give to us through each other and through your spirit and through your word. And Father, we do pray because our hearts are heavy with many situations. We think of this precious little girl, Adelina, that you just put your healing hand upon her because uh, medically they're trying but we know that you are the great physician and you can just reach down and bring glory for this situation. We pray for other circumstances here, Lord, of people that um, have lost loved ones, for people that are in the process of losing loved ones, for families that have to make hard decisions with kids and parents. There's so many circumstances here, Lord, that people face, some abandonment, others. Give us insight, Lord. We need you. We need you more than we already have you. We pray these things in the name of your son who alone is worthy and everyone said